Jack, Levi. The Book Club from Hell. Hello everyone, this is Jack with The Book Club from Hell, an errant branch of the Menshevik Party who are particularly interested in preserving dustbins and ash heaps for future generations. This week's episode is a continuation of our series on The Decline of the West, Volume 1, by Oswald Spengler. Today, we're discussing chapters 7 and 8, called Musing and Plastic 1, The Arts of Form, and Music and Plastic 2, Act and Portrait, respectively. Now, shilling time. I've recently published a novel called Tower, involving the medical treatment of souls, literally becoming your job, mass de-existence events based on stock exchange data, the phenomenology of dinner plates, and one very, very tall tower. This book is reminiscent of The Master and Margarita by Mikhail Bulgakov and Robot by Adam Vishnevsky snerk And if this sounds even remotely interesting to you, then I highly recommend you buy a copy from Amazon or Apple Books. Links in the show description will go to www.jackbc.me That is J-A-C-K-B-C dot M-E for more information. Additionally, we've also got a Patreon account for the Book Club from Hell. If you like what we're doing with this podcast, then signing up to the Patreon is a real help, as is rating us five stars on your podcast app of choice or telling friends and family about our podcast and encouraging them to listen. So, if you're ready to learn why Leonardo da Vinci left so many paintings unfinished at the Studio Brown stage, then listen on. Enjoy. He was obviously a very, very cultured man, knew a great deal about art and expressed his love of art in a very strange way by yeah, yeah, by yeah. really obsessing over particular aspects of art. He like loved art. And blue, green, the colour of infinity, the studio brown, dissolving borders, the golden Magian background, the and and how Greek statues could ultimately be viewed from any angle and separated themselves from the temple wall. He loved art, but that love expressed itself in very, very strange and quite unique ways. To yeah, to he definitely Oswald had a unique view of the world. It's it's funny that I was saying just before we started the recording that he's actually he's actually a, a fanboy. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's, a, he's a mad fanboy of all sorts of different art, and it's yeah. it's interesting that he didn't he didn't just go into art history proper as as a direct mm. study instead he went into politics and mathematics but yeah clearly a very cultured person it must have been weird to have gone to like an like an orchestra orchestra performance or just visit an art gallery with as man, you know like it would have been really weird for his friends trying to like man we really want to go to this art gallery but should we should we invite oswald <laughs> he's gonna talk go on about how he's gonna start talking about how this is so obviously <laughs> music in oil painting <laughs> i just can't i just can't deal with that today start losing his shit over the the visible brush strokes <laughs> which hint at infinity which turn the, turn this portrait from a static image into one of motion which expresses becoming or a moment of becoming it's a history it's an auto, it's a biography in painting <laughs> i think what's interesting is like he's trying to make an argument for the objectiveness of his own interpretation mm, mm. in a weird way yes i, and I don't no, know if he would say that himself like, directly it's but it's, He's definitely arguing for it being correct, but he also repeatedly says that it is of the Faustian soul and the only people who can understand it 
are also people of the Faustian soul and addresses himself. Because you notice, did you notice throughout the book he talks about us? So he's implicit, or no, not even implicitly, he's just explicitly writing this only for other Faustians because we are the only other people who could possibly understand this. But then how the, the thing is, how does he know that others couldn't understand him? Well, because, because he, said, he said that they can't. <laughs> he says that they can't earlier in the book. <laughs> if, if other cultures can't understand, if people of other cultures of different cultures can't fundamentally can't understand one another, then how can one of them gets the special exception to know which things the other ones can't can and can't understand? Well, he's really <laughs> lucky in that he is Faustian. He says that it's the Faustian is spirit Faustian. The, that is one. Exception to it's all one of, of distance <laughs> that allows him to stand back with distance and with a historical eye. And order <laughs> all other cultures and make almost this genealogy of culture. But in itself, it's still not objective because it's still Faustian. It's still Faustian, yeah. Still culturally relative. So it could be wrong. It depends on... Uh, so wrong, right and wrong in this context gets a bit murky. It's within the context of the Faustian soul. Correct. I guess it's... So there's, there's some sort of underlying reality which is run through the depth of Faustian soul. And the shape of that Faustian soul's depth will, will give this particular description of reality a shape, which, which is within the context of the Faustian soul correct, at least if I understand it properly, which I might not. <laughs> I think that's a big call. <laughs> so I think you're going to be one of the world's foremost experts in the decline of the West by the end of this Eight-part series. I, I doubt. I doubt that there are people who who get really obsessive about these. Books. I watched this one lecture by a German guy who who really likes Spangler and the decline of the West. What I've and I watched a couple of other. I watched a few videos of other people trying to explain his point of view, but they always kind of leave out the mystical supernatural claims of like these souls of the culture. They always kind of dance around. They. I noticed they never actually talk about that. They talk about like, oh, yeah, we can think of like mm. different cultures and civilizations going through like stages like summer, spring, autumn, winter and stuff. And there's these chorus, but they leave out the, no, he literally thinks that there's like a soul of the culture that's emanating, becoming <laughs> into the world through artistic forms and, and stuff like that. <laughs> they leave out all of this stuff. I guess. <laughs> He doesn't, he doesn't really specify the, the nature of the soul when he talks about soul. So it's not clear whether he means it. Like there's an ethereal being. Say in a yeah. Christian sense, in that there's, this, there's an immortal soul. Well, it's clearly not immortal. Well, clearly not immortal. But yeah, a mortal soul of the culture which stands apart from material reality, which he might mean. I'm inclined to think he more means it. Metaphorically. Yep. Metaphorically, in that there's some sort of function binding together the individuals who are part of a culture. Which, for lack of a better word, and that, is a soul. Yeah, which he describes as a soul. And that thing behaves organically in that it has, it has a life cycle. It has definite stages within that life cycle during which it will behave in certain stereotyped ways. But you're right. He's not, he doesn't really specify, actually, the ultimate nature of this soul. Yeah. That's why people come to us, though. <laughs> we, we not merely talk about the weird aspects of these books. We, we are actively seeking out the weirder parts <laughs> of the books to talk about. On that note, 
you come come here for a very <laughs> skewed view of basically everything. <laughs> On that note, um, it's uh, this particular episode is about chapters seven and eight, uh, subtitled "Music and Plastic." Um, there's two there's two chapters, so seven and eight. Chapter seven is subtitled "The Arts of Form." What's chapter eight called again? The Arts of Form and or we can talk about titles. Anyways, um, they're about what he calls music and plastic. Act and portrait is the the second, And largely speaking, this is chapter. Spangler's exploration of different artistic forms and how yeah. they correspond. How, how would you say it in, in Spangler's language? Like they are... <laughs> with, <laughs> Getting ready to make everything a lot they more They are unclear. the becoming... Um, of the of the the cultures, hmm. I need to figure out how to speak more Spanglerian. <laughs> I think Jack, you can probably you can probably do it. Give it a go. <laughs> I think yes. These I liked these two chapters quite a lot. These these are less theoretical than the previous chapters. So he's he's given you a huge um. He's given you a lot to think about in terms of his theory up till now in the book. These two chapters are more him applying this theory mostly to the development of art and culture in the the context of the West. He does mention the Egyptians and Greeks and things, mostly the Greeks, but overall it's it's like 80% the West and then the Greeks are the the culture and civilization mentioned next you know, the next most and then all of the other ones like the magian soul the egyptians etc are mentioned much less it's a lot of fun because he traces out the life cycle of a culture by mostly walking through the art history of the west and it gets really weird he he analyzes so much stuff to such a degree the specific color choices in Western oil painting, we, we can talk about why the Renaissance, he says, was definitely part of the Faustian soul and in no way classical. It was not a recrudescence of, of the classical soul in any way <laughs> for, for quite funny reasons, very, very Spenglerian reasons. The, the innovation of Titian in having visible brushstrokes in paintings, the music of Wagner, it's it's pretty fun I, f- I found these ones really really <laughs> enjoyable so because um i've had a lot on my plate recently haven't been able to go as in depth into the material as jack has been able to <laughs> of late <laughs> with um with spangler so it'll be slightly more of a q a between levi as somebody with a speed run understanding of the chapters uh, talking to Jack as Spanglerbot, <laughs> Spanglerbot three thousand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I will be responding as Spangler. <laughs> it's funny, even Jack took notes, and um, even just Jack's notes on these um, take up sixty pages in PDF. <laughs> so, yeah, the, yeah, the notes are pretty unwieldy, actually, for an episode. I don't know how helpful they're going to be. They're they're helpful for me remembering stuff. One thing, actually, so before we get into going through the timeline of, of Western art, 
Spengler starts out um, the the music and plastic chapters by sort of defining, or by defining music and plastic. So the plastic arts are they're basically arts you can look at, like shaping arts, things like sculpture or painting, and the and music is is a so called speaking art. So it's not something that is that's visible. It's not visually represented. Having made this distinction, Spengler then says that this distinction is is wrong, and people who who make this distinction are dum dums. Of course, because everybody disagrees with Spengler is a dum dum. <laughs> this distinction separates things based on which organ perceives the outer form of whatever piece of art is is being looked at. But a more meaningful distinction separates arts based on how they affect the inner senses and the imagination. And that's what Spengler cares about. And interestingly, Spengler says that this distinction is meaningful for Westerners, but not for people, for example, of the classical soul. Westerners, because of their Faustian spirit, can experience the becoming behind the actuality of any piece of art. So a piece of art is a is is become but westerners because we have this historical sense we can we can look through that become facade to the becoming behind that piece of art whereas for the classical soul everything was surface and so for for the classical soul this inner sense and outer sense were just not separable so does he ever really explain why this is the case well pre earlier in the book he his method is more to offer examples of okay so in the distinction between the western historical soul and the classical a historical soul he offers pieces of evidence he so he offers examples and says okay look at the the particular physiognomy of classical <laughs> art versus yeah. that of western art and from that he infers that the Western soul is deeply historical and is one that stretches to infinity and is acutely aware of becoming, whereas the classical soul is ahistorical, it exists in a continuous mythological present and is, is sharply demarcated. So everything exists on a, a surface. It's, it's very much a somatic soul. His, he, he gets to this point backwards from starting out with looking at the mm. the cultural output of these two souls and then saying that the um and then describing the inner nature of them mm. both from that mm. yeah hmm. okay so um all right so where should we start out then <laughs> it's, it's just one of those things where it's just like you just Thoroughly okay convinced. if i just take that for granted rather than like yeah because the main question is just because even like the even anterior to that, that empirical method is just assuming that the Western and classical souls are different yeah. and that you can divide epochs yeah, of and, history and into souls. Specifically, or that they're subtended by souls. Like Spangler can only make that claim if, it, if that claim is true, like um, in the first place. Like... Um, well, you can make the claim even if it's not true and write to <laughs> No, what I mean is like um, he's asserting that he can make this claim as a, as a member of the Faustian culture yeah. and that enables him to be able to perceive the truth of this claim. Yeah. 
I think he says that in the first chapter of this yeah. book. <laughs> but but like he's like ass- assuming that he's already correct <laughs> in the first place in order to, mm. f- for that logic to be able to work. <laughs> um but yes, but yeah, if you just I guess along, part of yeah. part of that might also be just the way in which the book is written mm, in that like the, style. the thinking through well no, or just the the thinking through of why certain cultures and when I say culture, I'm not saying this in a capital C <laughs> sense of culture. I'm I mean, I say it in the more general sense. When he the the process of thinking through how different cultures can be categorized mm. happened before he finished mm, the book. Mm. Like that that thinking process was before mm, the book. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. Um, okay, so anyways, that's stuff that we've sort of gone over. I just can't unhook from that, but I will try to unhook and <laughs> and just um, go along <laughs> for the ride <laughs> for a bit. Um, okay, so what have we got here? What have we got here? I thought um, his idea of plastic. Should we should we talk about the idea of? Um, I reckon going just going through the development of the Wests art and talking about that and talking about interesting things that come up in the process of that might be a way to organize this episode because that's roughly how these chapters are organized (laughs) there are yeah there 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 are a few things to say before setting off on this this adventure that will will just make some of spengler's statements clearer so one is that not merely the the pieces of art themselves, not merely the subjects of the art, but the artistic media chosen are also expressions of a soul. So certain souls will favour certain artistic media over others. For example, the classical soul very much favoured sculpture. And each culture or each soul is going to have an artistic form that that ultimately expresses the, the soul in its totality. And for, for example, the classical soul, that was freestanding sculpture. You had things like fresco art, which, which could represent a lot of the soul, but ultimately it was only freestanding culture. And in the West, something like oil painting could express a lot of the soul or represent a lot of the Faustian soul, but it was ultimately music that, that could do that. And it, ultimately, Wagner's music. I think it was Tristan by by Wagner was the thing that um, <laughs> that Spengler said yeah. was the culmination of the Western soul. Like that's the, the peak. Yeah, that's the peak. That is the the most total statement possible of the Western soul. So, okay, so you've got that. <laughs> certain cultures will will express themselves in certain artistic media, or certain artistic media are able to express a certain soul more effectively than others. Another thing is he says that the beginning of all all sort of cultural art of a soul is architecture. That begins everything. So what's the relationship and between the different forms? Like, as you said, like architecture starts everything off. Yeah. Does he describe... The relationship between art and I mean architecture and sculpture and painting and music. Yeah, he says initially for for quite a while, particularly in a culture's early life or a soul's early life, 
almost all of the artistic output of that soul is expressed in so architecture. So that would be during the springtime? In the springtime, it begins to detach. So other art forms are always beginning to pull away from architecture and they become more and more autom- autonomous as a soul ages. So should we map this into... To the point where they, they completely split off. So in, for example, by the Baroque period, which is really the high period of, of the Faustian soul, you've had things like oil painting and music completely splitting off from architecture and no longer being architectural. And then, interestingly, by the time you get to the Rococo period, it's reversed and architecture starts becoming musical and starts imitating music. <laughs> so should we do a quick reminder of, like, you've got the seasons of the soul, right? You've got the yeah. summer, spring, autumn, and winter. And so in each instance, he relates the the evolution of artistic forms into one of those periods for a particular culture. So we've mm. got like three tracks going on here. You've got the particular culture, so like Magian, Classical, Faustian or whatever, or Egyptian. And then within each one of those, you've got your seasons. And then within each mm. season or each, within and between each season, you've got how the different artistic forms um, evolve, for lack of a better word. <laughs> and relate to one another. Mm. And so early on, does he does he start out the cycles with summer or springtime? I can't remember. He must start out with springtime. Yeah. With springtime. Um, so it, it always starts with, in the springtime, strong architectural forms. Yeah. Or just everything is encompassed within architecture. Mm. That That's mm. the first form to really become distinct and to distinctly express a soul's um, in an and so does that say, is he you saying do that, like, the architecture is greatest in the springtime and then the architecture becomes less important and decays over the, so by the time you get to the wintertime of, of a soul, you have like worse and worse architecture. Is that, is he saying stuff like that? Yeah. Well, everything's, everything artistic is worse yeah. in the wintertime. Okay. Like it's, it has the greatest emphasis placed on it earlier on in a soul's life. There is also, so last episode, we mentioned the distinction between imitative and ornamental art. Imitative art also exists and is very, very important earlier on in a soul's life. It's just that that sort of stuff doesn't get preserved because of the, the nature of imitative art. There so that tends would be, to be like things like spontaneous group dance or group Roman, chanting. Roman art imitating classical or imitating Greek. Uh so it's it's less that so imitative and ornamental art the distinction is it's sort of that of being and becoming so imitative art is art that tries to draw the participant in into the same direction as that of becoming so it tends to be things like group song <laughs> or group chants group dancing it it brings someone into the same it brings someone parallel to becoming <laughs> whereas the ornamental arts are part of the the depth function of a soul of the mathematization yep. of space they try to they try to fix things into place concretely and these are things more like architecture painting no music that is notated and so 
So these are these are concrete artifacts that persist through Rather time. Than things like dance. so. There's also a bias in terms of preservation towards ornamental. And so art. would um, play and theatre be imitative then? So it's a, it'll, it'll always be a spectrum. More or it less. depends if it's improvised yeah. or not. So I guess Improv- you could say comedy. completely improvised theatre would be much more imitative because it's imitating the becoming. Whereas of the world replaying them. King Lear or something like reinstancing yeah, King Lear would be ornamental. ornamental. So, with regards yeah. to like the period of um, <laughs> so during the entire whenever chat goes to explain something, obviously you can't see it. Um, but he's got this smile on his face as he tries to navigate the and pass the concepts <laughs> of Spangler in, in, in a way that is actually digestible and understandable. Jack's done an incredibly good job of, of like uh, actually getting to the point where you probably do actually understand Spangler, where I, I can just straight up say, like, I still don't understand what the hell he's trying to get at. The thing with Spangler, he writes in this particular way where he'll kind of tell you his one of his beliefs and he just says it like you just have to go with it he just says one of his beliefs and then he will just he'll basically repeat himself in different ways he'll just give lots and lots and lots of different examples of this one thing and eventually your mind syncs up to his and it starts making a lot of sense but it's quite hard to convey <laughs> Of what Especially he was saying, in, which might be why he he wrote these books in the way that he did. It's almost like high volume pattern recognition. You're a you're a neural net being trained on Spengler's training data, where he's just giving you all of these different examples until you pick the pattern. That connects <laughs> I them. actually think this um, text would actually be better done as a as a um as a movie or something. It's quite visual. You could actually demonstrate what mm. he's saying much better with with film and show like his like Egyptian architecture and stuff and his and actually show whereas he's I guess he's put in a lot of effort to try to convey this stuff in textual form. <laughs> it's just yeah. very impressive. Anyways, back to the the categorization of things. So, can I also ask just for a reminder of um to help Dum dum Levi out. Um, we've got our major our major souls. We've got our classical Egyptian Magian. What was the Magian soul again? So the Magian soul is is the soul that arose in the Middle yes. East. So around, like Arabia. I get around like the year zero or thereabouts. And for quite a while it was covered over by the classical yeah. soul. So its early life is it's <laughs> It, it exists as pseudomorphosis, so it exists as <laughs> as basically classical forms animated by a different soul. So the forms, while they might exteriorly appear classical, actually signify something different. And so then we also have um, Faustian. Can you explain yeah. briefly what he us. means by Faustian? Because he he's really he really likes that. As in what what the Faustian yeah. soul is the the constant yeah and yeah it's where a, would it's it start a historically ninth or tenth century I think okay and so can we also just one last thing one last little thing um what exactly so we talk about the West the West right and this is the decline of the West but he has a distinction between the classical soul and the Faustian soul yeah whereas like people might have a misconception that oh they're both just the West but they're not. Is it? Yeah. Is it? He cre- says they're totally different. Yeah. Is it correct to say that what he means when he says the West is he, like you could retitle it the decline of the Faustian soul? 
Yeah, yeah. So when he talks about the West, he <laughs> he means the Faustian soul. Yeah. And of the West, he mostly means Northern Europe. Yeah. So he does talk about Southern Europe, particularly when he talks about the Renaissance, but he mostly means Northern Europe. And that's interesting because the Renaissance is not a part of the Faustian soul, he said. Right. Oh, it, it is. It is. Okay, it is a part of the Faustian yeah. soul. He says it's, it's definitely part of a fa- the Faustian soul. It's just people who don't understand history think that it, it has some link to the classical soul, which it doesn't. Ah, which it doesn't. No, but Was that pseudomorphosis as well? Not even pseudomorphosis. <laughs> like, we, do you want to talk about the Renaissance and why? Yeah, let's talk about the Renaissance. About the, the, Renaissance. Re, the only reason why I was bringing up those um, reminders was because in each instance we can think, of like, let's talk about the architectural form or the, yeah, the yeah. sculpture or whatever, the Magian soul. So what do we mean? Like the Arabian around the years zero or like Faustian, he means like Northern European modern. Mm-hmm. He says the Renaissance was definitely part of the, the Faustian soul. So part of every soul's life cycle is it reaches... It reaches early on a point where it comes to understand its own destiny, capital D, destiny. The soul's depth grows, and that depth imposes upon the soul and all of that soul's output a destiny. It, it imposes upon it things that it, it must do unavoidably. And a soul, upon becoming aware of this, will oftentimes have a rebellion against its destiny, where the soul begins to, the soul as becoming begins to generate being. It actualizes being in a way that tries to run counter to its destiny. But this is ultimately just an inevitable part of its life cycle. And Spengler says that the Renaissance is basically this, this doomed rebellion of the Faustian soul against itself. And this rebellion was nonetheless <laughs> thoroughly Western and fundamentally different to the classical. So what is being rebelled against? So the Faustian soul has understood itself to be one that is deeply historical, that is of becoming, one that reaches for infinity, and one that seeks to dissolve body and, and dissolve itself into endless space. Mm. To rebel against this, it tries to adopt the forms of the classical soul. The classical soul being one really characterized by by concrete, delimited bodies, the surface of a body. So Mm. something which doesn't dissolve itself into space, but something which is of a surface, something which has no interiority, something which is it's almost transparent in a sense. Everything present is on the surface. Is this, sorry, this is the classical? Yeah. This is the classical. Yeah, so that would come through in like their alabaster sculptures, like... Yeah, the freestanding sculpture, which was yeah. the, the height of, of yeah. classical cultural output. And that extends all the way into like Rome. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. R- Rome being the, the winter of this. Yeah. So you've got, you've got the, the Faustian soul that in the Gothic period really came to understand itself and understand its depth and it rebels mm. against that at least in southern europe in the renaissance and so so then he's almost creating like a meta framework through which to understand things like what we'd consider say the gothic period and mm. the renaissance oh that, that's absolute that's 
definitely what he's doing. That's the point yeah. of the whole book, yeah, to set yeah. out. It's sort of to to work out what these different souls do during their life cycle. So one of the things he just says is that all of these souls are of the same, I guess you'd say of the same species, in that they all have the same length of life unless they're cut short by something. And they always go through a certain number of life stages in which yeah. they predictably behave in certain ways. And these life stages last the same amount of time. And so, and he calls these like stages physical, physical chronological time or historical achronological. It'd be chronological time, so you can measure it in years. Yeah. Okay. So for he'll he'll call these different time periods contemporary if they if they're at the same point in a soul's life cycle. So for example, the yes. the springtime of the Faustian soul is contemporary to the springtime of the Magian soul. Even though chronologically they occurred at different points in yeah space they time. occur at different points, but yeah. if you if you like line the two souls up next to each other, those yep. yeah That's the two spring times will correspond. So when he talks about yep. things being contemporary, he means it really really differently to how it's that, that word is conventionally used because it's Sp- yeah. Spengler. Yeah. That's, yeah, one yeah, of the, yeah, that's actually one of the things that makes talking about Spengler hard is because his vocabulary is highly specialised, but also perhaps it's not the case in German, but at least in the English translation, there are a lot of words that have a conventional meaning. But yeah, yeah, he just takes those words and then changes the meaning to mean something quite different, which makes yeah. discussing it sort of difficult, or you just need to keep specifying whether you're using a word in a Spenglerian or a normal way. I suppose in this in this regard, he's talking about. Like, I I can see what he's saying. <laughs> it's just, it's just me more like yeah. It's just what's this correspondence between these two different souls? Yeah, as you said, if you line, if you were to line them up, if they happen to be coincident in mm, mm. um chronological physical time yeah <laughs> they would they would be having like their spring time at the same time or whatever yeah yeah that's really interesting um so we should talk about some particular some art <laughs> let's talk about art let's a lot of preface art, all of this hey, i think this i mentioned this... this when we talked about the futurist manifesto that i just do not know much about art it's just i don't know anything about art this is not my strong suit. I like books. I have family um, members who are artists, but they're all like contemporary artists. Mm. And so I just know about weird contemporary art stuff. <laughs> <laughs> not not like any of this this, this stuff now <laughs> we're talking about. Not like Spengler, who God, can you imagine what it would have been like to meet this guy? It would have been I, really strange. I bet, <laughs> I bet this guy would have been able to lecture you on art for hours and hours, just off yeah, the just top off of the his cuff. Head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he had multiple layers, so he could have done the conventional art history lecture, or he could have given you the Spengler special, where he starts talking about souls and pseudomorphosis and seasons of the soul and things like that. He was a very creative person, wasn't he, in his own strange little way? I, this is a... Deeply, deeply creative work of history. And I don't mean that as an insult. No, no, no. I mean, I mean, this is really high praise. I, when I was walking home this morning from the cafe, I was thinking about actually this episode and how 
I don't think there's an, anything fundamental. So, so there's a, this idea of like children have what's sometimes called magical thinking, mm. you know, like in believing in Santa or, or whatever, or like having imaginary friends and stuff. But I don't think, and I was listening to this one educator, like edu- uh, like educational philosopher. He was saying like, there's not any meaningful distinction between the magical thinking of kids and the magical thinking of adults. But really what's happening is that adults have, uh, we've, we've evolved like culturally the ability to constrain that magical thinking. And so like science, mm. for example, being like the highest form of it where we're, we're constraining it by intensely rigorous um, empirical tests and that sort of stuff but it's still magical like it's still a magical thing like in order to really understand something as like bizarre as say like time dilation you have to like sit down and try to imagine really strange scenarios yeah, that you actually absolutely. never experience yourself and so in the case of somebody like Spangler or a lot of the people that we've read on this podcast I actually think there's something like deeply interesting about like these people are um, exhibiting the same magical thinking but they've changed the constraints that yeah, they're using yeah. <laughs> to like shape what their thinking is and it leads them to totally different out- outcomes with like the model of the world in their head. And that's, yeah, that's a really good way of putting it because if, as we've noted probably on every Spengler episode, there is there is some sort of similarity between him and Evola, not in terms of the, the contents of their thought, but as you said, they'll both set out constraints on their thinking, which mm. at least in my mind seems somewhat arbitrary. but. They'll set out yep. constraints on their thinking, but then both of them are rigorous enough that they just follow those constraints through to their logical conclusion yeah. and make these highly internally consistent yeah. <laughs> alternate yeah. models of the world, yeah. which I find really fun to inhabit. I'm not sure how, <laughs> how generalizable that is, but- yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's just such a strange experience. And that's why you can have that sense of like internal- truth to the thing yeah, like corris- yeah. internal correspondence um if you don't step outside of the spengler boundary laid down. it it makes sense and i guess the only reason why i find it hard is because i'm a i'm a degenerate modern <laughs> <laughs> but i always ask like as we've just said before like why like why did you why do you have this constraint i almost feel as though like what's happened is they've they've like Spangler, both Spangler and Evler, they've um, sometimes they explicitly say one of the constraints or one of the first principles, and sometimes I feel like there's also a lingering first principle which yeah, maybe they they're not aware of, and they they haven't said it because maybe they haven't realized it themselves, articulated it themselves, mm. but it's in there in the background, and they're not breaking it. And yeah, it's 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 interesting to see they they take these models to their logical extreme and, and apply them in very strange ways, like with art and stuff. <laughs> I guess in, in the case of the two, of, of Spengler and, and Evola and a number of others we've read for this podcast, I can very confidently say that I enjoy the things they've written from almost an artistic or an aesthetic, or aesthetic perspective. point of view. Yeah, yeah, in yeah. That they've, they've set out their own constraints, followed them, and by tightly following the contours of those constraints have generated something genuinely interesting and they're in, in their vast knowledge of different different yeah, cultures yeah 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 they both they're both smart they're enough very erudite erudite enough and just autistic enough 
to, <laughs> to, to fully actualize that system of constraints. <laughs> Into like 1100 page treatise. Like, yeah. How many books did fucking Evola write? Like 30 books or something. <laughs> oh, he wrote so, yeah, like high 20s, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. <laughs> talking about like sex magic and revolt against the modern world and. So yeah, actually- they were they were very inspired by yeah. So it's it's interesting because it's it's good to I think sometimes Levi's meta framework of like humans creating knowledge um, is that like roughly speaking um, we have to discover the the constraints and mm. the the things that and the criterion by which we're judging a model. But like if somebody comes along with totally different criterion criteria and constraints and so forth, then they still might be rational within that system yeah, of constraints. Yeah. <laughs> because but because you disagree with those constraints and those criteria, you're going to like talk past one another. <laughs> yeah. We, I mean, you and I both will be operating with a large number of unexamined constraints on our thinking. Yeah, 100%. That we're, just, we're simply not aware of. And then clashing with somebody like Spangler. Yeah. When it, who just, who's just inhabiting almost a different rational framework. To us. Yeah, and then also just writes just terribly. <laughs> <laughs> his writing, his writing is very German. Yeah, very intense. I don't know. Uh, I don't read. know what it, it might just be a function of how the German language works. In that, it supports being able to make new words that are commonly understood very, very easily. Uh, yeah, but yeah, uh, at least but when it's translated formal. into English, a lot of Germans write in this way that, at least in English, is really, really clunky. Just because in English, yeah. representing those neologisms doesn't work because yeah, of how the yeah, language yeah. functions. Yeah, true, true, true. Um, I, I anticipate I that's mostly that, actually just because of how the German language works. Yeah, how easy it is. I saw this German guy trying to explain in English how making new words is much easier in, in German. Mm. Which I didn't understand. I was like, oh, well, that's weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Shout out so, to Yarp and Hans, and Maestro, <laughs> our German contingent. So, should we? Anyway, that was the a Renaissance nice tour into into stuff. Yeah, the Renaissance. Let's talk about. Should we talk about the architectural styles, the art, the music? Yeah. So the Renaissance as a reaction to the destiny of the Faustian soul. Yeah, he says, if you if you really look at the Renaissance with with an eye to see. You you will you will clearly discern that it is actually just purely Faustian. It's it's not remotely classical. Why is this? Well, he, I've got some examples here. So, Renaissance architecture emphasised the facade, and the facade of a building is stylistically connected to the interior. So, it it admits of an interiority, whereas. Classical buildings attempted to deny interiority altogether. So they were made up of columns, and with the columns, the inside is continuous with the outside. There's no hidden interior. Everything is surface. As well as that, when you look at when you look at sculpture in the Florentine Renaissance, so he says probably the one way in which the Florentine Renaissance was similar to, to the classical world was that sculpture was the preeminent art form. Very, very brief, but it, it was the preeminent art form in the Florentine Renaissance. However, 
classical sculpture was freestanding, or at least at least it aspired to be freestanding. But Florentine sculpture, I quote, feels behind it the ghost of the niche into which the Gothic sculptor had built its real ancestors. So Gothic sculpture existed within niches. So, for example, within hollows of the wall of a church. And Spengler says you can see this in Florentine Renaissance sculpture as well. And that's totally unclassical. Classical sculpture could be viewed from wherever, whereas Florentine sculpture exists to be viewed from a certain perspective in a certain place. Also, and this is this is the the most damning piece of evidence against the Renaissance being considered of the classical soul. And he brings <laughs> he brings this up so many times. <laughs> Fucking Spengler and Columns. It's anyone who's read Spengler <laughs> will know know what we mean when we say that he just loves columns. He does not stop talking about <laughs> columns and the importance of columns. So Renaissance round arches join directly to columns, which is not classical in the slightest because it's <laughs> it's a continuous line. It's just, it has nothing nothing classical about it. The classical mind could not comprehend joining <laughs> columns to an columns arch. To arches. <laughs> when we when we use examples of joining columns to an arch and say it's classical, it's wrong. That's a Magian pseudomorphosis. That's not classical. The classical soul was dead by the time that started happening. This is a Magian motif. All right? It's Magian. Have you got that? <laughs> you piece of shit. <laughs> Fucko. Does anybody want to fucking debate this? <laughs> Take it up. Take it up with Jack. <laughs> no, the classical soul was dead by Florence. <laughs> yeah, so... Yeah, um, he unironically uses this as a piece of evidence to to dismiss the claim that the Renaissance was was classical. When the classical uses what they thought were when the, sorry the Renaissance uses what they thought were classical arches, what they're actually imitating is they're taking the external form of the classical pseudomorphosis used by Magians and animating it with a Faustian spirit in Florence, naturally. Okay, wait, sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> They're taking a Magian pseudomorphosis yeah. and so, animating it with a Faustian spirit. So what happens, so you have, you have the Magian soul arising <laughs> underneath sort You've of the, the, ossified, the ossified remains, the the sloughed off actualities of the now dead classical soul. But how is that so Faustian? The Magian soul arose in that context. And the pseudomorphosis is that the Magian soul took took these forms that it saw in the world around it. So <laughs> of of dead classical actualities and started yep. using that form language to express itself. So the Magian yep. soul was expressing itself in but Florence. using the forms of the classical soul that it saw. And so you had things that were maybe in appearance that had some, some visual similarity to the classical soul or actualities yep. of the classical soul, but were animated by a different principle. Hence yep. why you had round arches 
joined to columns, which was unclassical. That's a, that's a Magian thought, but the Magian soul was expressing itself using these classical forms and twisting them. But I thought the, uh, the, the Renaissance was Faustian. How does the Faustian... And exactly. So what the Faustian Renaissance did is it saw, it saw these archers joined to columns, mm. which were actually Magian, but because it, it has no understanding of the classical, it said, oh, that's classical. We're going to imitate that because we are classical as well. So it just it demonstrates the fundamental disconnect. What? <laughs> <laughs> so it's the Faustians imitating. It's the Faustians the imitating the pseudomorphosis by the Magians of, of the classical. classical. Yeah. And they're mistaken. So basically, the Fa- yeah, just, oh, because the just, Faustian soul was trying to rebel. It, it was yeah. trying to rebel against its own destiny. Yeah, you can't tell me what to do, Mum. It's saying it's saying to the Gothic, the Gothic Faustian self understanding of its own destiny. Because once once a soul understands its destiny, implicit in that is the soul's death. Yes, it sees that it it, it inevitably will end, and it rebels against that. It's like and death it's, terror. The the soul, the ratty teenage soul. rebellion of the Faustian soul <laughs> was the Florentine Renaissance. <laughs> and it just it looked for something in the past to to identify itself with to now, try to deny that coming that death interpretation but, of Spangler. Yeah, but it demonstrated its its complete lack of understanding of the classical by picking something that was fundamentally unclassical and calling it classical, such as an arch joining to a column. Yeah, <laughs> all of this is Spangler looking at arch an arch joining to columns. <laughs> I, he just never stopped to think like there's a lot of cultural output and even as erudite as he might have been, he still only has the throughput capabilities of a single person to absorb enough information to make such a, a, um, a, a an intense, cl- not intense, as a definitive as a categorical claim, claim. interpretation of the Magian soul pseudomorphosis of classical, the classical soul being used by the Faustian soul to rebel against his own destiny. Like he, he extracted that out of archers joining to columns. My read on Spengler is that he was, he was very, very smart. I'm pretty sure he was quite socially isolated when he was writing this. And he yeah. must have just gotten a real kick out of his own intellectual fireworks, just being able to draw connections between lots and lots of things. And Mm, he did it mm. to the point where he never really, he didn't stop and ask, do I need to be making these connections? He just (laughs) wanted to be connecting things. Or he might've even thought as like some sort of divine inspiration, you know, like, have you ever had this moment? I've had this moment where I was like, wow, that was really smart. It's <laughs> just stoner thoughts, perhaps. Like, oh, wow, that's really smart. And like the next day I think, wow, that was really dumb. <laughs> that's a really dumb idea. <laughs> like it seemed it seemed smart in the moment. Um, Spengler never stopped. Yeah, Spengler was like intoxicated on his own ability to make these connections and never really thought, okay, well, maybe they're not. Maybe there's not as much there as I thought. <laughs> he just said, this is the, um, what did he call it? The um, Copernican revolution of history. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what about um, 
there's a note here that says uh painting there's some stuff about um i don't know if you just want to vibe on this um the great faustian style lived between roughly 1500 and 1800 yeah, we can talk about that. That this is fun. This is a lot yeah, of fun. Okay, so um, Spangler says that the Great Faustian style um, is fundamentally musical. Yeah, <laughs> culminating in instrumental orchestral music that completely dissolved body and spatiality. Um, so there's a quote here. Um, at the beginning in the 17th century, music uses the characteristic tone colors of the instruments and the contrast of strings and wind, human voices and instrumental voices as means wherewith to paint. It's quite, it's quite unconscious. Ambition is to parallel the great masters from tied to uh, Velasquez, Velas, Velas, Velasquez, Velasquez and Rembrandt. So, um, what is he saying there? Because this is this might be quite confusing, but in fact, you can paint with music, and you yeah. can you can use music to create, and you can you can paint with no no you can use music to create paintings. Yeah. So this is this is going back to what we were saying earlier about how Spengler says that some people make the distinction between various artistic forms on the basis of how they appear to the external senses. So yeah, which separating, is... say, visual arts, so things like painting or sculpture, from things like music. And which he says this, this is wrong. What we should be doing is looking at how they influence the inner sense. And so yeah. in this way, Western music and Western oil painting affect the inner sense in the same way. Yeah. I guess this brings up... It's actually quite is, an interesting idea, though. Like, this is later in the second music and plastic chapter, but it's probably worth bringing up now. It's also quite annoying because it makes talking about Spengler more difficult because, again, it affixes a new meaning to an existing word that has a, a predefined meaning. His idea of impressionism. And when I say impressionism, I don't mean the French artistic movement. Impressionism for Spengler means something quite different. So Impressionism is a specifically Faustian way of looking at art. It's a way of of looking at how does art affect the inner sense and examining examining the way in which art affects the inner sense. Impressionism for Spengler is broadly the Faustian approach to art after oil painting in which the artist uses the actuality of their art, so that is the, the concrete manifestation of their art, say the painting or their music, how the music sounds, how the painting looks, to force a phenomenology or an impression upon the beholder. And this art is, is the complete opposite of plastic art, the plastic art being this concrete art, something like a sculpture for a classical beholder, who will only see the sculpture's surface and everything is in that surface. Whereas the impressionist approach to art ev evokes the impressions of one experiencing the world. It addresses itself directly to someone's interiority. I quote, Impressionism is the comprehensive expression of a world feeling and it must obviously therefore permeate the whole physiognomy of our late culture. There is an impressionistic mathematic which, frankly and with intent, transcends all optical limitations. 
it is analysis, as developed after Newton and Leibniz, and to it belong the visionary images of number bodies, aggregates, and the multidimensional geometry. There is again an impressionistic physics which sees, in lieu of bodies, systems of mass points, units that are evidently no more than constant relations between variable efficients. There are impressionistic ethics, tragedy and logic, and even, in pietism, an impressionistic Christianity. Now, this impressionism extends to every artifact of Faustian culture. I actually genuinely think this was one of the more interesting points, this idea. Yeah, this was definitely one of the most interesting bits. And to be fair, this might be one of the few places where I would actually give Spangler like, actually, that would be a useful way to think through. Like, I think this has high correspondence to reality. Yeah, because you could see, even that's what the, say, like, we recently read the Futurist Manifesto, um, mm. where they were obsessed with speed and they didn't care that they were expressing the 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 phenomenological um, essence of speed through sculpture, which some of their sculptures are really amazing, the Futurists, um, or whether they are doing it through painting, oil paintings, or mm-hmm. music, or like the form of a car and the way that a car can look fast. They were just like obsessed with speed and expressing that, that um, the spirit of speed in different artistic forms. Yeah, um, yeah. So I actually think that, in this regard, like, Spangler is actually onto something. Yeah, exactly. Because the, the futurists weren't expressing something literally going quickly. They weren't just showing you a fast-moving object. They were showing you, for example, a painting that gives the interior sensation of speed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I actually so thought that, this was a really interesting point. Like, yeah. disregard the surface, what sort of, like, physical form it has. Like, look at its yeah, phenomenological form. It's phenomenological yeah, yeah. category. Yeah. And I brought that up because of what you said about how, how um, at least in, in the Faustian soul, as the Faustian soul ages, everything becomes more musical. I see that as and so musical, sort of a different way of like Spengler expressing movement. this idea that how you, the physical medium with which you, you evoke certain impressions is, it is important. Certain media lend themselves better to expressing certain impressions than others. But ultimately, the the end point that you really should be focusing on is what impression is evoked, in which case oil painting and music can both be said to be musical or Rococo architecture can be said to be musical because it's ultimately aiming at the same impression. Or like a different thing could be like sculptural or something. Mm, mm. I, I agree with you. That's... The impressionism stuff is probably the most interesting part of these two chapters. Yeah. And so with regards to um, what we were saying before, um, the uh, impressionist, impressionist. So, yeah. okay, so let's, let's, let's zoom in on that a little bit because he's mm. very, as you noted in, I think, one of the quotes and during your explanation, how can we, how can, how, how, do, I, how do I phrase this question? Why is it the case that impressionism across different cultural, uh, across different artistic forms, how come that is um, the key impression style of the Faustian soul? What is it about the Faustian soul that wants to um, emanate impressionism into mm. the world? 
if that's the right way to put it. I struggle to like form these questions probably. But yeah, that's you see what I'm trying to get at, right? Yeah, yeah. I think it could be in part because of the nature of the Faustian soul, how that the Faustian soul is striving towards an infinity of endless bodiless space. So the dissolution of the body in space. And we can mm. talk about how this yep. is represented in art yep. later because that, that part of these chapters is quite a lot of fun. So I guess a pure sensation of, of whatever impression is being represented or whatever, that, that pure sensation, that impression evoked by some concrete piece of art is in some sense bodiless as opposed to, for example, a classical sculpture, which, which has sort of, it, it has itself fully embodied. So the fully embodied classical sculpture versus the bodiless impression evoked by Faustian art. Also is the, the, the Faustian focus on becoming and the historical, as opposed to the classical focus on being and body. So mm. Mm. Faustian art, any individual instance of art is by necessity being. It's actualized, unchanging being. Yeah. Insofar as it's ornamental art. But the the key distinction between, for example, a classical sculpture, which doesn't represent anything beyond itself, its surface is everything. It is the pure surface present. Whereas and a Faustian piece of art, a f- even though it concretely, in a physical sense, is still being, it's still an unchanging piece of art, what makes it truly Faustian is that it represents and evokes a sense of becoming. So when we, we can talk about Titian, he says Titian and the Venetians' great innovation in the, the 16th century was that Titian began to paint with visible brush strokes and these vis- visible brush strokes, even though obviously the brush strokes themselves are fixed in place, like they're not moving. But what they do is they represent the process of painting the picture, of motion. So they make the painting historical in that they represent to the Faustian viewer the becoming that went into creating the painting. And in that way, are of becoming so they evoke that impression i think that's that's what drives the faustian um impetus towards impressionism yeah i could also be completely wrong like i'm i guess i'm taking a spenglerian approach to this of just trying to draw associations between all the different things he said <laughs> obsession with the infinite dissolution of attachment to corporeal space Objects. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's interesting. Uh, I think that's, and so, so in that respect, it's highly musical, <laughs> to use Spangler's word. Yeah, it's highly musical, or it's is it highly plastic? It's no, plastic. not plastic. No, it's at not all. plastic. It's musical. Whereas, yeah. what would be uh, to compare? What would be a culture and form artistic form that is plastic? So the classical, he compares the Faustian and classical souls a lot because he sees them as deeply, deeply different. So, so the, classical the would be classical plastic. soul, yeah, is is very much of plastic. So it expressed itself best in plastic arts. So things like things like um, 
fresco painting, and then particularly freestanding sculpture. This is a wild and ride. <laughs> it's a wild ride. These two, these two chapters are probably my favourite ones of the book so far. They're, they're really fun. You've got here a quote. In the context of the West, so the Faustian soul, the cathedral is music and the castle makes music. What does he mean by that? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, how, can, he's, he's... how can architecture be musical? So architecture, it, it can be musical in the same way that oil painting can be musical in that it evokes an impression of bodiless infinity and of becoming in one viewing it. Mm, yeah. So it's again, it's back to that. What's the it's phenomenological? phenomenological. So it's not that it in itself is is a. Uh, it's you know, it's not Newmanly no, changing. It evokes it's not, not of becoming. It's it's what it evokes. It evokes um, in in phenomenology. The the Gothic cathedral evokes a sense of infinite transcendence in the person yeah. partaking in in building or cons- or like viewing the cathedral. Yeah, and it's. I'm pretty sure the quote you read out is also relating to him talking about the distinction between imitative and ornamental art. How the it was the countryside, yep. the manner, the nobility were much more of of the imitative side of things. So they were imitating being, trying to go with the direction. Uh, sorry, of becoming, trying to go with the direction of becoming. Whereas, whereas the church, the cathedral were much more of being so they were concretizing things making things ornamental um concretizing these things that instead of bringing you in the direction of becoming evoked feelings of becoming in the viewer in an impressionistic mm, sense mm, mm. interesting <laughs> <laughs> people can't see levi's thinking face and he's, he's getting slammed with these things <laughs> It's like that galaxy brain meme. I feel like science is just like little pea brain and then Evola yeah. is like a little, little bit more galaxy brain and then Evola Spangler is, is like big galaxy brain. And then going, losing your mind over columns connected to arches <laughs> is like full-blown. <laughs> One of my favourite memes of all time is the, um, is the meme of... Uh, what was that? Tim and Eric, like mind being blown in their little like black <laughs> their black um turtleneck jumpers, like <laughs> that's Levi's mind being blown about like <laughs> on Spengler columns, <laughs> columns and arches, refuting the claim that the Renaissance was classical. Oh, uh, perspective and colors. Oh, let's. Let's go into perspective and colors. This is where he he analyzes okay. particularly oil painting, or not just oil painting, painting in general, a very unique way. It's very very unique. So, in the context of perspective, it's kind of. I was going to say it's kind of obvious what Faustians would think. If you're familiar <laughs> with Spengler, it's obvious what it's Faustians, it's obvious what Faustians yeah. would would think about perspective. So, perspective is a representation of space. Therefore, it's a representation of a person's depth experience. And when I say depth experience, I mean this in a a Spenglerian sense. So a soul, as it matures, develops a 
sense of depth, and that depth is almost a filter through which experience is passed and then organized and ordered and and mathematized. It's made natural. And the the prime symbol, so this this thing that is is inherent in in a culture's depth leads to different expressions of perspective for different cultures. For example, mm, mm. Egyptian depth was that of a a long corridor. So it was it 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 had a great deal of length along one axis and was extremely constrained along all other axes. Um, the the depth of the classical soul was was extremely limited, intentionally limited to to a concrete surface. And anything that not merely lay outside of it, but hinted at an existence outside of that, that all-encompassing surface could potentially let in chaos and just destroy everything. And then, then you have the Faustian sense of, of distance or of perspective, which is that, that of infinity and trying to lead to a, a bodiless infinity. And something that tried to destroy any sense of surface, completely dissolve it. One way in which this was done, so, you know, you had things like, you had Gothic architecture, which reached for infinity with really high ceilings and things like that and gave the, the strong impression of space. But that's still not the highest possible Faustian art form because it's still just by nature of, of the medium itself, mm. of architecture. It's still very embodied. The two art forms that most effectively express the Faustian soul are oil painting, which is sort of the secondary, the secondary one. The primary one is music. So while oil painting, particularly with its use of colour and with vis- visible brush strokes, can go a very long way towards representing the dissolution of body and surface in infinity, music as it simply has no body at all is is the greatest vehicle for expressing the Faustian spirit because it doesn't just represent the dissolution of surface and body. It has no body. Mm. Mm. It's, it's pure changing becoming. Mm. But to get to that point, we should talk about colours because he's got, he's got this chapter on colours where he goes into a lot of detail on colours. It's, um, it's section eight. Of music and plastic. Yeah. Okay. He says yellow and red are foreground colors. Um, and they represent the plastic body because I guess you just you just have to accept that plastic body is equivalent to foreground. He just says it is. It just is. Yeah. <laughs> blue, blue, green, and studio brown are the background colors of space. So space and background are associated. Surface, body, and foreground are associated. As such, the the colors yellow and red are, are very much favored by classical artists. And as the Faustian soul develops and grows more mature, the the colors of blue, green, and studio brown, which are transcendent and spiritual, representing space, loneliness, time, and destiny, they come more to the the fore. He says that the high classical arts, 
avoided blue and blue green as these colors symbolize a space exterior to the body which which the classical soul wanted to deny he says of course say classical craft arts might have blues and greens but the high sacred art of of the classical soul avoided these colors oh here we here we go him talking about the the importance of blue and green particularly when it comes to representing the distance and the horizon in in Western art, I quote, Blue and green are the colours of the heavens, the sea, the fruitful plain, the shadow of the southern noon, the evening, the remote mountains. They are essentially atmospheric and not substantial colours. They are cold, they disembody, and they evoke impressions of expanse and distance and boundlessness. An infinitesimal blue to green is the space-creating element throughout the history of our perspective oil painting from the Venetians right into the 19th century. It is the basic and supremely important tone which supports the ensemble of the intended colour effect as the basso continuo supports the orchestra. It is not the full, gorgeous and familiar green that Raphael and Dürer sometimes, and seldom at that, use for draperies, but an indefinite blue-green of a thousand nuances into white and grey and brown. So yes, Oswald. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> what they do? So you've you've got blue green, mysterious, non-sensual blue green, which to the Faustian represents infinity. And what they do is they take this color and then also bring in studio brown. What studio brown lets the painters do is it lets them express, lets them express light shade perspective depth without the use of lines so the line is still something that represents a surface and a body what studio brown and blue green allow oil painters to do is it allows them to express allows them to express scenes while denying body so you don't have any he calls them sensual lines sensual meaning it suggests itself to, to sort of plastic senses, to a, a sense of concrete body. And using these colours, Faustian oil paintings were, were able to deny the body and evoke the impression of, of boundless, infinite space in those beholding them. One thing I like also, he, um, he talks about the use of gold in Magian art. So he says... Gold's not a colour, it's a metallic representation of something outside of nature. So it denies the body, but it also denies the world outside of the cavern. For people who, it's been a few weeks since we released a Spengler episode, people who've forgotten, the Magian soul's prime symbol is the cavern. So you have space within the cavern and outside of the cavern. Either nothing exists or is there, there is something outside of nature and to an extent unknowable beyond the cavern and mm. gold represents this i've got a good quote here actually where he compares the um the use of colors in the classical western and magian souls is is quite fun i quote in this instance we can study the soul of three cultures working upon very similar tasks in very dissimilar ways the apollonian culture recognized as actual only that which was immediately present in time and space, and thus is repudiated the background as pictorial element. 
The Faustians strove through all sensuous barriers towards infinity, and it projected the centre of gravity of the pictorial idea into the distance by means of perspective. The Magian felt all happening as an expression of mysterious powers that filled the world cavern with their spiritual substance, and it shut off the depicted scene with a gold background, that is, by something that stood beyond and outside all nature colours. Gold is not a colour. As compared with simple yellow, it produces a complicated sense impression through the metallic diffuse refulgence that is generated by its glowing surface. The metallic gleam, which is practically never found in natural conditions, is unearthly. The gleaming gold takes away from the scene the life and body, their substantial being. Which... Can you just imagine occupying this guy's subjectivity as he walks through an art gallery? <laughs> I actually think he'd probably be one of the, the most fun people to go on like an art excursion with. Not yeah. Not necessarily for the truth content of what he's saying, no, but for just him. for the just for the fun. Just for like, let's go on a day trip to the local art gallery, Oswald, and you just tell us about what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> I think it generally would have been pretty wild. But I think I'd probably have to have like a gummy or something before. <laughs> <laughs> Take the edge off him his ranting. I've got to say he's it's it's extremely interesting. <laughs> Just yeah. like I, I don't know how to put this exactly, but um you know, as far as I am aware, like humans are really the only animals that like have this obsession obsession with symbols like mm, other mm. other animals signal they'll like dance or you know like there's a really interesting species of fish that creates this like very intricate pattern in the sand mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. they use that to signal to mates like their for whatever reason like <laughs> Um, their fitness, their sexual fitness or whatever uh, within that species. So I suppose there's symbolism within other species that's very, like, constrained to that species. Um, yeah. Whereas humans have this thing where we're, like, obsessed with symbols and even something like, oh, you know, look at the US $1 bill. It's got the eye of Horace on it or some shit. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> what does it mean? What's the meaning of this? Um, but then you've got people like Spangler who just take, take it to the next level. It's just <laughs> yeah. like completely simple obsessed. Like there's a meaning in everything. And um, and in particular, I found his, his idea of the earth symbol for a particular culture, the prime symbol for a particular culture as like... I don't know where he got it from, but it's a fascinating idea. (laughs) You have this like one animating symbol around which the other symbols rotate. (laughs) And it's almost because he says that the the prime symbol, it's it is it is itself a representation. So yeah, (laughs) when we talk about the Magian cavern, the soul doesn't literally have a cavern in it. It's more (laughs) The concept of the cavern is meant to evoke in you a feeling for what the depth experience of the Magian soul is. Yeah. Mm, Yes. The prime symbol (laughs) itself symbolizes the depth experience of a culture. (laughs) Surely this wouldn't make sense to anybody except people who have read Spangler. (laughs) 
even with these episodes, so we're we're spending a lot of time on Spengler. I st- I'm still not convinced that you can really grok Spengler unless you've actually sat down and bulldozed through his books. I certainly feel that way. <laughs> um okay so what about uh color preferences no you can't remove that what about we go to um, um to, to act and portrait yeah i think that's a good idea act and portrait yeah Pull up my notes. so this is music and plastic two is is act and portrait that's chapter eight separating what act and portrait means so in German, apparently the word act means a pose or a nude in the context of art in quite a, a broad sense. Spengler, however, uses it to mean something different. He means an expression of the instantaneous become as opposed to to the historical becoming. So that's that's what he means when he says act. So like dynamism, movement-oriented things. Not necessarily movement. Mm. No, yeah, movement. Well, yeah, like the 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 act. It's something. It's something frozen. It's something frozen in place. So, a a classical sculpture, for example, yes, is act because the classical sculpture, one, it it denies the historical by virtue of the fact that it is of the classical soul, but also, it's it's not individual and it doesn't express mm. an individual's uniqueness so spengler says that with classical sculptures for example they tended to have a handful of of stereotyped forms like you had oh this is the general sculpture and this is the the political leader sculpture and this is the poet sculpture this is the playwright sculpture and you'll have an individual person who'll fit into one of those roles. So, okay, you might have someone who is a general and they will have a sculpture made mm, of them. Mm. The sculpture might not actually look like them, but it is the general sculpture. It is a sculpture for generals. Or you might have someone who's a poet. The yep. sculpture won't necessarily look like them, but it is, it is the poet sculpture. So yep. in that sense, those sculptures are acts rather than portraits. And he compares this to the Faustian soul, which doesn't really tend to make acts so much as portraits. Everything is a portrait. Everything is historical and an autobiographical examination of, of a person's interiority. Mm. And in that sense, yeah, I think that's actually, that sums, there are a lot of examples he gives. I think that's the- What was your favourite example? Sums up, what was your favourite example? Hmm. Okay, how about this? This is a, this is another demonstration as to why the Renaissance was Faustian <laughs> and not, not classical. He really, really likes this theme. He seems quite personally wounded by the suggestion that the Renaissance is anything but Faustian because he spends a lot of time on this and he keeps coming back to it. So I quote, The fall of draperies was meant in Athens to reveal the sense of the body, in the north to conceal it. Oh, and as an aside, when he talks about the North, he means the the classical soul, the classical, the Faustian soul. Mm. So the North is basically analogous to the Western or the Faustian. The fall of draperies was meant in Athens to reveal the sense of the body. 
in the North to conceal it. In the one case, the fabric becomes body. In the other, it becomes music. And from this deep contrast springs the silent battle that goes on in high Renaissance work between the consciously intended and the unconsciously insistent ideals of the artist. A battle in which the first, anti-Gothic, often wins the superficial, but the second, Gothic becoming Baroque, invariably wins the fundamental victory. So this is act versus portrait in that the fall of draperies over a sculpture in Athens Mm. was act. Mm. It was... It was a surface that represented nothing beyond it being a a surface that contained everything within it. Just like so, so much meaning to be found in every little thing. In everything, <laughs> in everything. Whereas, whereas in the Renaissance, in Renaissance sculptures, the fall of draperies over a body, it's it's portrait because it actually, in an impressionistic sense. It evokes in the person viewing it a a sense of history, a sense of biography of whoever is being depicted, a deep individuality, mm, mm, mm. which is of of becoming. Being Spengler must have been exhausting. Just this much <laughs> meaning being written across everything would have just been so tiring. I think as a heuristic, you can think of you can think of the act as a body or an instant or of actualized being. And you can think of portrait as as history or becoming. Could we compare and contrast some major artists? Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo. Mm-hmm. We could. Are there any other? Because Spengler actually does that <laughs> at length. <laughs> yeah, so that... The three giants of the Renaissance, he says, were mm, Michelangelo, Leonardo, and Raphael. And he said he, in a very Faustian way, offers portraits of all of them, talks about their their interiority, their destiny. And it, I found this part quite interesting. So so Michelangelo he considered to be a really tragic figure as this person who he he really wanted to pursue classical plastic, but just just couldn't no matter what his his attempts to capture the classical always came out deeply faustian and he used classical methods like fresco and sculpture but everything expressed using those classical methods was still faustian and as he got older his works became more musical when he says more <laughs> musical i i assume he means having a greater and greater sense of of becoming and bodilessness in an impressionistic sense and one with Michelangelo sculpture ended for for the the western soul mm. he exhausted mm. sculpture's internal possibilities he actualized all of them within the faustian context and after him there was simply nothing more to be said in sculpture. So all other culture fountain. after Michelangelo is just um, like pseudomorphosis or is it like just the dregs or something? It's not pseudomorphosis. So if you're a Faustian after Michelangelo doing sculpture, doing sculpture the sculpture lacks any sort of inner necessity. So in mm. terms of the, the mm. structure of the soul, presumably it has 
it has finite resources that can be dedicated to an individual art form. And I guess Michelangelo just ran the tank empty. And after that, there's no, there's no more soul support or soul juice to, to put into sculpture. And so does that mean so like the sculpture, the sculpture All itself. sculpture afterwards is, is barren and devoid barren. of in and necessity. Does that also mean it's like low quality then as well? Is that... I can, Maybe. How Spengler talks about these things is interesting. How he talks about how you can have different levels of skill in a person, but that skill will be expressed differently at different stages of a soul's life cycle. So, for example, if you take two people who are of average talent in a in a, a given artistic medium. So say let's we'll just take the, the Faustian soul. So you take someone who is an a painter of average talent, if they are in the Baroque period, which is which is really the spring to summertime of the Faustian soul, it's at its it's at its highest point. The soul actually provides this this tradition and inner necessity that animates artwork with deep power and deep symbolism. So even if you're just an average painter, but you you happen to have been born during the Baroque, you can you'll be effortlessly creating these masterpieces. Whereas if you're born mm-hmm. later, mm-hmm. if you're born say in 1900, you you don't have that support of of the soul or of of capital C culture to animate your art and you can work really really hard but you're just you're not going to produce much that's very good. It's interesting he yeah, talks that's really, about how really interesting how Wagner really he compared Wagner and Haydn so he said that Haydn because he was in in the baroque period he he seemed so effortless in what he was creating he was creating all of this music mm, mm. effortlessly whereas Wagner even though Wagner was a genius Wagner had to strain and you can feel that strain in his music because he didn't have the support of a soul behind him in nearly the same way that Haydn did or Bach did. I find that interesting too, the the relationship between the stage of the soul and individual's talent and the artistic output of an individual. I guess that Mm, that goes mm. some way to answering your question. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, I think it does. Spengler. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So Leonardo. So Michelangelo, mm. he ran the tank empty on 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 the plastic mm. arts in the Faustian context on sculpture. So unlike so Michelangelo was sort of he was backwards looking. He was a Faustian genius who was looking back to the classical and trying to use and trying to make classical art, but no matter what, he just kept making Faustian art. Mm. Raphael sits between the two in that Raphael, his paintings are still, they're Faustian, but in an intermediate stage. So his, he's the last, at least in Spengler's telling, great Faustian painter who, who still painted surfaces. So he, he's the master of line. He uses line. Spengler calls it a drawing style. He uses line to express sensuous surfaces 
And then after so after Raphael, you have people like Titian, whom I mentioned before, who has the I think Michelangelo said that Titian couldn't draw, meaning that Titian no longer was representing surfaces with lines. Instead, he was using visible brush strokes. He was moving towards a more impressionistic style. And then mm. the final of the big three of the Florentine Renaissance is, is Leonardo. Mm. So you've got Michelangelo looking back. You've got Raphael occupying this intermediate stage of Faustian painting. And then you've got Leonardo who's looking forwards. Leonardo was a painter of interiority and space. And he, he dissolved everything into one endless expanse. Unlike Raphael, for example, who, who painted concrete places. And it's also, Leonardo wasn't tied to surface, for example, in the same way that Michelangelo tried to be. I quote, When Leonardo studied anatomy, it was not, as in Michelangelo's case, foreground anatomy, the topography of human surfaces, studied for the sake of plastic, but physiology studied for the inward secrets. Mm. I've, one of the funnier parts mm. of this, this mm. section is, um, so apparently Leonardo didn't finish quite a large number of projects he started. He has lots and lots of unfinished paintings. Spengler comes in with a, it's just like I would never have thought of this. He comes in with a really unexpected justification as to why this was the case. So, he says that Leonardo Leonardo basically came up against the limits of the possibilities of painting in in the time in which he lived. So he uses the example of the Adoration of the Magi, which is um an unfinished painting of Leonardo's that Spengler says is one of his masterpieces because it so clearly shows the the Faustian spirit straining against its current constraints of body and i guess of of painting technology he says the work is unfinished because the forms available to leonardo in renaissance florence couldn't express the faustian feeling that that leonardo had interiorly yeah he left it at the studio brown stage at the stage of colors that express depth and infinity without line and and didn't advance beyond that and i i quote only Leonardo was great enough to experience this limitation as a destiny. His soul was lost afar in the future, though his mortal part, his eye and hand, obeyed the spirit of the age. I really like that, that Leonardo's genius is exemplified in his unfinished paintings. Yeah, and it's, it is a, it's a stretch. It's a stretch, but if I stretch, I can see what he's talking about. But it's a really fun it's stretch. It's a really fun stretch where it's like, okay, so this ador the adoration of the Magi is beautiful, but then because he didn't finish the coloring and it's still brown, he just left the base layers without finishing off the colors. Therefore, he's hit the upper limit of what's like possible within the cultural context. Well, it's, it's, it's less that and more he began painting it with Studio Brown. Yeah. And then came to the realization that within the the existing repertoire of I guess of of, of painting technology, of the things mm. of the mm. techniques and materials available to him, he could get no closer to expressing the Faustian destiny than he could with 
with simply Studio Brown, so he stopped. Because any further alteration to the painting would make it a less perfect expression of Faustian So he hit the technological limit of the ability to express the Faustian Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, do you think Leonardo would have put it that way himself? (laughs) I would be very surprised. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very specific (laughs) interpretation of Leonardo da Vinci's work. I don't know if you could come up with that interpretation in any other framework. I think you have to. There's no convergence in this between Spangler and any other philosopher. You could only arrive at that interpretation (laughs) of the adoration of the Magi if you're coming from a Spanglerian analysis. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The decline of the West is truly a Spanglerian self-portrait it's autobiographical in a faustian sense in that it perfectly (laughs) (laughs) captures the interiority of oswald spengler (laughs) i enjoy this book more and more because while i i just don't agree with a bunch of stuff he says in it it's a very beautiful work in that he just comes up with an internally consistent system he just follows a bunch of constraints he's decided on to their logical endpoint, no matter how ridiculous. I think that's that's why I enjoy this so much. What's interesting though is that surely there is another interpretation of the adoration of the magi that is consistent with his framework, but he only proposes one. You know, like maybe there is another way to say like that is that is consistent with Spangler's point of view. Of that work, mm. um, but he he doesn't propose it. I'd like to see like some neo Spanglerians offer new and improved interpretations of the of the work body of work of Leonardo da Vinci that goes beyond maybe <laughs> goes beyond Oswald. There are some neo Spanglerians. I think it's yeah, it's Francis Parker Yockey. I think that's how it's pronounced. Who was um. Heavily inspired by Spengler and basically wrote like neo-fascist works, like trying to trying to apply Spengler's ideas to 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 neo-fascism. What do you reckon the overlap is between neo-fascism and neo-Spenglerism? Spang- Spenglerianism. A, a lot, a lot. People <laughs> with 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 fascist sympathies tend to like Spengler, which is which is which is interesting given that Spengler. I'm pretty sure regarded a lot of elements of fascism as degenerate and just <laughs> evidence of the degradation of the West. I, I, I get the impression that sometimes people who don't like liberalism like Spengler because he also didn't like it, even though he disliked it for very different reasons to I imagine why they dislike it. Yeah. Demonstrates yeah, why yeah. the enemy of my enemy is my friend <laughs> doesn't necessarily <laughs> make sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um. How interesting. So uh, we've already kind of mentioned that the Baroque era, starting around 1550, was the culmination of Western art, that this is the high, this is the summer point of the Faustian soul. And this is where oil painting, oil painting is still, it's still going well because there's just so much capital C culture backing it up. But music really takes centre stage as the Faustian art form Mm. and increasingly does so because 
painted arts can evoke an ideal, but they're ultimately illusions. They're ultimately representations of infinity, whereas music is is bodiless. That's actually really interesting. And bro, yeah, I really like rock that. Rock music is beautiful. <laughs> it's, just, it's almost as if like you yeah. take any piece of like really beautiful music, especially Faustian music, and just run it through the Spangler bot and just come up with some, some like crazy interpretation of it. <laughs> Baroque is even more the beautiful because it it embodies or encapsulates the bodilessness of the infinite this pursuit of the infinite by the Faustian spirit. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, what other interesting pieces? Um, We've talked about the height of destiny of, of Faustian art in bits and pieces of the Baroque. Yeah, uh, during this. Is episode. there any other parts about? Should we talk about? Um, we can talk about. Okay, so th- this was confusing. So I said earlier how Spengler uses impressionism in a different sense to how it's conventionally used. He also does talk about Impressionism as the 19th century, largely French, artistic movement, which makes things even more confusing. But he talks about Impressionism, the 19th century artistic movement, as an example of the decline of Western art and culture after, after the high point of the Baroque. Mm. And he... So he says, basically, oil painting exhausted its potentiality at the end of the 17th century after the great masses of oil painting died. So he, I think for, for him particularly, Rembrandt is, is the peak of Western oil painting. And after Rembrandt, everything goes downhill. Sort of like how Michelangelo exhausted the, the inner possibilities of sculpture, Rembrandt did the same. To, to oil painting. He's, he's just cucking all oil paintings after him. Even if, if you pick up a brush now, Rembrandt is cuckolding you from, from all those <laughs> centuries ago. <laughs> I think Ed, Ed mentioned to me that basically every episode we mentioned cuckoldry. <laughs> some, some like vulgar fucking joke. It's an obligatory part of the like book club from hell. Foot, foot, foot fetish jokes or like something... People's balls getting crushed. <laughs> I find the reasons he gives as to why Impressionism, the 19th century artistic movement, this is why it's so fucking annoying talking about Spengler is his terminology. <laughs> so his reasons as for why Impressionism represents a decline are, are pretty funny in that they're just pure Spengler. So he says <laughs> Impressionism rejects Studio Brown as a colour. I quote, this brown, the symbol of a spatial infinity, which had for Faustian mankind created a spiritual something out of a mere canvas, now came to be regarded quite suddenly as an offence to nature. Mm. He says that the artwork also lacks a religiosity and is, is becoming more mathematical and natural. And when I say religiosity, he means it in a very specific way. He doesn't mean that oh, the art of Rembrandt was oriented towards the Christian god he means, or at least I'm, I think he means mm. religiosity in the sense of being guided by or being the, the vessel for superhuman forces. So of these forces of the soul that guide individuals that are subtended by that soul. I'm pretty sure that's what he means by religiosity. But 
but the the French Impressionist art is not guided by this inner religiosity. It's guided by, he says, science and capital N nature. So mm. a focus on technique as an end in itself, of a conscious technique rather than a technique which merely exists to express a necessity. Yeah, and and then the subject matter is more mundane. And I find this quote is really funny. So I quote, Rembrandt's mighty landscapes lie essentially in the universe, Manet's near a railway station. So you're no longer contemplating infinity, you're contemplating a railway station. And, oh, actually, here's a quote. So what I was saying earlier about how there's a, there's a relationship between an individual's genius and talent and when in a soul's life cycle they are born, which, can, which will determine the type of art and the quality of the art that they produce. I've got a quote here, which is interesting. So, in Murray, lastly, there was all the mighty intention of the great Baroque style, but though Gerico and Daumier were not too belated to capture it in positive form, he, lacking the strength and that a tradition would have given him, was unable to force it into the world of painter's actuality. So, there's strength that tradition or being born at the right time in a culture would give you. Yeah. And you can just get unlucky. Yeah. <laughs> That's really I've bucked the trend. I've bucked the trend though. Because <laughs> in the winter of the Faustian soul, Jack BC published Tower, which everyone <laughs> listening should, should go out and buy a copy of on Amazon. Go to jackbc.me. Jackbc.me. If you need to remember that it's Jack Big Cock Me. That's how Jack Big Cock Me. <laughs> or Jack Book Club. Or Jack Big. No, no, no. Don't. Don't confuse the matter. Jack, Mr. Big Cock. <laughs> Mr. Jack Big Cock Me. Um, go to that and buy his book, Tower. It is somehow. I mean, like. It might be like it's the birth of a new soul. Better than Spangler. <laughs> it's literally the best book ever written. Um, yes, it's the birth. It it signifies like there'll be like the birth of a completely Spang- new world. Oswald Spangler the seventh will be writing. Um, decline. This decline is the Australian of, decline soul. of Gondwana land. Um, <laughs> this is the Gondwana land soul. <laughs> the Gondwana soul is the, the pseudomorphosis of the Western soul. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the pseudomorphosis of the Faustian soul by by the Gondwana mm. soul in the form of Jack's Tower. <laughs> go, go to Amazon.com, search Tower by Jack BC. You can get a taste of what the Gondwana soul will look like. <laughs> yeah. Um, after that, he talks a lot about Wagner. He really likes Wagner. He says, like, okay, I quote, The last of the Faustian arts died in Tristan. This work is the giant keystone of Western music. So he rates Wagner very high. <laughs> after Wagner, basically, the Western culture dies and we enter civilization. Like, Wagner's the end. <laughs> he, end. Just, he, he completes so it. So just as a reminder, what does civilization mean in the Spanglerian sense? Why does this signify the end of the culture and the beginning of the civilization? Capital C culture, capital C civilization. So capital C culture is 
it's so it's the actualized form of a soul in the world. So that soul, that soul through inner necessity compels people to make art, political forms, etc. That that express this soul. The soul eventually dies, like all biological things do. Once the soul has died, you still have the actualities of that soul in the world. The becoming soul no longer exists, but the the being created by it still persists in the world in a physical form. Civilization is basically it's almost the momentum created by a culture when it was alive continuing. So this momentum continues and has some ballast in terms of the actualities produced by the culture that preceded it. However, no longer having inner necessity, it starts dissolving very quickly and and spinning off into into oblivion. Civilization tends to be characterized by a, a lack of focus on things like art and increasing focus on capital N nature, which we talked about more in previous episodes, the the increasing mathematization of everything, the emphasis on being overbecoming, the the emphasis on very large world cities where culture is dissolved and there's a a complete non-particularity of culture emphasized an emphasis on money and commerce. And Spengler thought when he was writing The Decline of the West that that he was very much living in a civilization. And that means that in 2023, we are only more so living in civilization. But anyway, our civilization basically started with Tristan, Tristan and, by and Wagner. Why, why was it? When Va- Wagner dropped Tristan and ended the West. Hmm. It says, the symptom of decline in creative power is the fact that to produce something round and complete, the artist now requires to be emancipated from form and proportion. It's most obvious, though, not not its most significant manifestation, is the taste for the gigantic. <laughs> yeah, I found this really interesting how he's saying that as as a soul gets very close to the end of its life the art produced and because the culture is still alive you can still produce great art like wagner did but you have to strain you need an an individual of immense genius to be able to to make something great at the end of culture because (laughs) the culture is just not lending you as much strength as it would have when it was younger and healthier and this straining can often manifests in in things being gigantic and dramatic. And so you, you can say a lot of things about Wagner's music. Wouldn't describe it as subtle. No. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> That's for sure. It's based, Wagner is like the death metal of classical music. <laughs> and so I, I found that interesting when he says that at the end of culture, you get gigantic things. And then that does, I guess that persists through into civilization. In civilization, things have only grown larger. We have skyscrapers and things like that. One way to put that: things might grow be larger like... and larger and larger with less and le- well, with no inner necessity. They're not symbolizing anything yeah. beyond size. Yeah. So, like in one way, of putting that is potentially like overcompensation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just, just giant, erect, big cock skyscrapers, <laughs> fucking the sky, <laughs> like a tower. Towers fucking this yeah. guy. 
Exactly. One tower in particular. <laughs> Jack's tower. Jack's big My fat tower. tower. Fucking this guy. <laughs> Which everyone should read about, incidentally. <laughs> yeah. Um, I find it pretty funny too, Spengler's dislike of the artistic scene around him when he was alive. He has such powerful old man yells at cloud energy. Yeah. <laughs> so... Without the inner necessity of a soul guiding art, art starts just going off into any direction. <laughs> and it doesn't represent anything. And it, it becomes purely subject to the vagaries of taste. I quote, We go through all the exhibitions, the concerts, the theatres, and find only industrious cobblers and noisy <laughs> fools who delight to produce something for the market, something that will catch on with a public for whom art and music and drama have long ceased to be spiritual necessities. At what a level of inward and outward dignity stand today that which is called art and those who are called artists? In the shareholders' meeting of any limited company or in the technical staff of any first-rate engineering works, there is more intelligence, taste, character and capacity than in the whole music and painting of present-day Europe. <laughs> I also find it interesting... I think we pointed this out in the first episode, how he says it's not that in civilization there is nothing worthwhile to be done. There's nothing worthwhile to be done in the artistic field because that's something that you need a soul for. But when it comes to engineering and science, there's, there's plenty to do in civilization and plenty of worthwhile things to do. Building out the works. All is not lost. If, like, you can be a STEM lord in 2023 and things will be great. It's just don't try to be an artist. <laughs> so that brings us to the end. That's it. Of music and plastic. What a wild ride. That's music and plastic. People now, what a what wild a ride. These two chapters yeah. are really, really fun. The thing is, I don't think, like I wouldn't recommend someone just read these two chapters because without having put in the hard work of, of sinking your mind to Spengler's mind, you probably won't appreciate just how wacky this is or the the wackiness of reading this stuff and it making sense yeah perhaps like none of the chapters should really be read in isolation <laughs> they're not standalone no and the thing the thing is yeah any individual chapter even chapter 1 won't necessarily make much sense in isolation part of the reason why i found i find it so hard to describe spengler or to convey his ideas is that the book is written in such a way where understanding tends to assemble itself over time as you read it. There's not a declarative statement he makes that you read through and it's very clear and you think, okay, I understand this concept of Spengler's. Instead, he just, it's, it's the, the volume approach of examples. He just gives you lots and lots and lots of examples and you eventually build up intuitions as to what is or isn't right in Spengler world. Which is fine. It's just when you try to make the jump from that to explaining to people what Spengler was talking about in a podcast, that's, that's quite a difficult jump to make. <laughs> so would we recommend anybody else go out and spend hours and hours and hours reading this and converting it into a podcast? <laughs> well, no, because then they'd be competing yeah, yeah, with so us. Don't do that. I don't want any competition. <laughs> don't do that. I would recommend The Decline of the West to... To the same person that I would recommend Evola to. <laughs> names. <laughs> names. Yeah, names. <laughs> if, you get, if you get a kick out of reading 
like esoteric something that Buddhist theology yeah, is is esoteric but weirdly internally consistent then i would unreservedly recommend the decline of the west <laughs> um if you're somebody who's thinking about becoming an artist in the late, late faustian civilization then no maybe it'd be a bit disheartening or maybe it would set you on no, the right no. track and stop you. Spawn the Gondwan and soul. <laughs> spawn me. the Gondwan and soul of Jack Bigcock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good idea. Uh, um, yeah. What else is there? I don't know. Shout out to Alex. Next. Shout out to Barrett. Next Pam. episode is. Shout out to Hagerston. <laughs> Shout out to Sweden. Shout out to Sweden. Shout out to JBO Johansson. <laughs> um, shout out to everyone on the Discord. Um, shout out to Nam Tam. <laughs> um, there is a there's an episode coming out on what did we just read yesterday? Oh, the secret that's coming out soon. <laughs> Lighten things up, and also we'll be doing the art of the deal soon as well. So like Fuck, that's splitting up. Splitting I mean, um, I'm spoiling the episode. It's just the art of the deal. It's maybe I'm just too used to to mainlining like compilations of the best bits of Trump speeches. It feels like Diet Trump. It's just this is so much more boring. <laughs> so much other Trump stuff. Um, and then we'll finish off Volume One of Spangler in a, in a couple of weeks. Yeah. and and move on to something else. I guess for a bit, probably before picking up Spangler Volume Two. I've got something that I reckon we 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 definitely need to cover. It was this was recommended to us by um by Cryo. Shout out to Cryo for this recommendation. Cryo's had some this good is a really good one. Which one? Are you? He's had some excellent recommendations. There's one on like violent anti-colonialism written from an indigenous perspective, which I think we should that should be good. at some point. We should definitely just so do I can that. justify coming over and taking your stuff off you, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> Give me my land back, bitch. <laughs> like, Levi, you're not even from this part of Gondwana. Get the fuck out of here. That would be a really good one to do. Another really good one to do. Okay, so this is one Cryo recommended. A Pickle for the Knowing Ones by Timothy Dexter. <laughs> what the fuck? Published in 1802. <laughs> Timothy Dexter, he was some guy who, who came into a lot of money. I think he inherited a bunch of money. And... People kept trying to fuck with him and make him lose the money by suggesting to him really terrible business decisions, which he he just did them. And then almost basically always just through intense luck, they ended up making lots of money. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so he wrote this he wrote this book called A Pickle for the Knowing Ones, which is unpunctuated, just has the most bizarre spelling has just random capital letters and is basically him talking about how good he is. And then, having published the first edition and handed it out for free to people, he published a second edition. And the change in the second edition was that people complained that there wasn't enough punctuation in the first one. So he just included a page at the end of commas and full stops and exclamation marks <laughs> and things and said... Here's your punctuation. You can you use it as you like. I, 
<laughs> it's only like 30 pages. I really want to yeah, read it. Yeah, sure. Let's do that. It sounds like, like a nutcase. Such a loose unit. <laughs> it's like, you, you've just made all your money. You just don't give a fuck. You're just like, I'll just do what I want. <laughs> I don't need this book to sell. Made, like, made a lot of money through complete luck. <laughs> Complete luck by following the advice of people who are trying to make you lose money. <laughs> yeah, sure. Let's read it. It's a dollar and Kindle. So, yeah, shout out to Cryo for that recommendation. That's a fantastic one. <laughs> lord. He was a lord. Lord Timothy Dexter. <laughs> um, yeah, there's there's been some other ones. And I think the next big book that we'll read, like hard book, will be probably The Technological Society. Hey. Maybe, Ooh, maybe be in a, the new yeah. year. Yeah, and we'll have a few not-so-intense yeah. books for a while. And then at some point, potentially, we might do it, do some volume two of Decline of the West. Anyways, we should let the good folks get about their days. Do you have any last things to say? We should let the good folks go and buy copies of the album. <laughs> <by> JackBC.me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you Thank for listening. You for listening.